Okay, you can take a seat, friends. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Um, it is without compare. It is our plumb line. Come now, Holy Spirit, speak uh, in power. Lift up the humble, humble the proud. Bless us with your word. Direct us, glorify Jesus. Show us how good you are. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So Paul here, he's, he's recommending singleness over marriage, okay, as, as you heard, clearly. He's not dissing marriage at all. He's saying it's a good thing, and if you, if you need to marry, marry. It's, it's no sin, because he can't do that, because he talks to married couples later about how to, how to love your spouse, and then he says earlier, he recommends marriage earlier in the, in the book as we preach, but he's recommending singleness over marriage, and that, that is shocking. It's not maybe as shocking to us, but in Paul's day, it would have struck its readers as, the Corinthians, for instance, as extremely shocking. Um, two scholars in their book, uh, Life in Biblical Israel, say marriage was considered the normal way of life. In Israel, celibacy had no status, okay? Celibacy had no status, and, and I could go on to make that point, but that's absolutely true. And so why all of a sudden is it not only acceptable, but recommended in Paul's view? Uh, to remain single and to not get married if you're not married. Um, I, so that's the question, right? What has changed? W- what is going on in Paul's world that he's able to say this? So I've, uh, I-, I was in Switzerland years and years ago. I believe I was with my sister, actually, and we were on the side of a mountain in a, in a town. You might have, if you've been to Switzerland and you're an outdoor adventurer, it's almost redundant to say that. If, if you've been to Switzerland, you probably have become an outdoor adventurer because there's just so much amazing stuff um, interlocking and all that. But Grindelwald is sort of a hub of all that. But there's another lesser known place called Gimmelwald, similar. And it is not Grindelwald. It's not a hub of anything. It's on the side of a mountain in Switzerland overlooking the Jungfrau Range. Beautiful, glorious peaks. And you can't get to it except by walking or gondola amazing little hamlet on the side of this pristine mountain range. And I was, we were, there were only a few buildings on the side of the mountain, and we were having, I think, dinner one night, and we started talking to this man. He's American. Turns out he's from Chicago, and he lives there with his wife in Gimmelwald, Switzerland. And this is, I mean, this is a long time ago. It was, ooh, it was 15 plus years ago. And he, so he was way ahead of his time. Uh, you understand when I say this, because he was like, yeah, I still do business just like I did back in the States, but this is such a beautiful place. We loved it so much, we decided to move here. But I work the stock market, and I just, uh, I do it for my computer here with the internet. And I was almost like, like, internet? What's the internet? You know what I mean? It was so long ago. I think it was 1999. Um, and that's almost 20 years ago. Wow. And, but he, for him, the internet had absolutely changed his world. He was able to do what he did in Chicago from a much more beautiful place. And so um, that, I feel like, is, it's, it's, it helps us get toward what Paul is saying here. Something has happened that was more, far more drastic than the, the reality that man was living in. The internet now changed the way that he could live. For Paul, something had happened such that he could move from... Uh, a community, and in fact, the whole broader ancient Near East, which says the point of life is essentially to get married, have a family. And he could say, that's wonderful. It's still a call of God for many, but I want to recommend 
in light of this, what's happened now and the age we're living in, I want to recommend singleness as even better if you can dig it. Okay, that's a Taylor translation of what Paul says here. So let me read again, reread verses 29 through 31, sort of the nub of the hardest part of what Paul says here. This is what I mean, starting in verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. What? And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So a lot of commentators read this and they say Paul was mistaken. He thought Jesus was returning really soon, like within his lifetime. And so we can kind of push off the table a lot of the advice that he gives about singleness in light of this. Or even if they don't say that, they still think, many commentators and academics, scholars, think that Paul was mistaken here. He's talking about the imminent return of the Lord. Um, he, he, one guy says, it's almost like, in fact, he's a pastor at another of our surgeon churches in the Heights, but he says, it, it's a, they imagine that Paul was sort of like, had a sandwich board and, his, and a megaphone and is walking around uh, the, the ancient, the rim of the Mediterranean, uh, shouting, the end, is ne- the end is nigh, the end is near. Um, it's not what's happening, but it is tied into that misconception. And rather than saying the end is near, I would almost purport that he's saying the end is, the end is here. Okay, the end is here. So stay with me. Um, a lot of us, when we think of the end times, a lot of us, when we think of the last days, biblically, we think of the future. Something that's yet to happen, and we build charts, and there's nothing wrong with charts necessarily. We build charts, and we try to figure things out according to the scriptures. When is it coming? When are the last days coming? But actually, the New Testament gives us a different picture. So let me give you one example. So in the book of Acts, right after Christ ascends to heaven and is seated at the throne of power, and he sends his Holy Spirit, that's Pentecost, that's what we celebrate on Pentecost. He sends his own spirit, the spirit of the living God, to dwell in anyone who will look to him, to be little Christ's to be filled with the presence of God, to be, to be brought from death to life. That's what to be a Christian is, to be a new creation by looking to Jesus and what he's done in our place. So when that happens, Peter, who was a knucklehead, I mean, the, the picture we have before this of Peter is he's, he's the one who is speaking out of place, he's full of faith, he's full of passion and zeal, and it's wonderful, but he ends up, kind of the last thing we see in the Gospels before the book of Acts, right before Jesus is crucified, what is Peter famous for? He denies his master. He denies his savior that he says he will go to death for three times. He denies him. Peter doesn't get, even when Christ is ascending, he doesn't get what's happening. And he says, is now the time where you're gonna trounce Rome and decimate this geopolitical problem we have? You're gonna take care of all the stuff that I can see? And, he, and Jesus is like, hey, I'm just gonna go. And when you get the spirit, things will be okay. So God, Jesus ascends to heaven and he pours out his spirit, and the first thing that happens is Peter gets up, and they start speaking in tongues. And people, they're in the middle of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, it's, the, it's a big feast time, a feast of weeks. It's packed in there, um, and, uh, and so they go out at nine in the morning, and they start speaking in tongues, these Christians, and people think they're drunk out of their mind. And what does Peter say? He says, we're not drunk, but this is a fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And he says this, he says, in the last, he's quoting from Joel, he says, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He said, that's happening now, that starts now. In other words, what is he saying? He's quoting from Joel, he says, Joel said, in the last days, and that is inaugurated right here, right now. 
the time between the two comings of Christ, between his ascension formally and his, and Pentecost is pouring out of his spirit and when he comes back again to finish evil, to bring those who look to him to himself and to make all things new and to vanquish the devil and to wipe the tears from our eyes and to end sin. The time between his two comings is the last days. It's now, it's the church age. These are the end times according to the scriptures very clearly, okay? Obviously, there are still things that haven't happened, but there's no age beyond, uh, until Christ returns, there's no age beyond this. This is the last age. This is the age of the spirit, the age of the church. And for Paul, that's the key to this passage. Everything changes. Everything changes in light of that. If you're mourning, stop living as if you're mourning. If you're celebrating, stop. If you're married, stop living as if that's your chief concern. If you're single, okay, their chief concern is something else now in light of what's happened, okay? Um, These are the last days. So verse 26, another tough verse. Paul says, I think in light of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So I'm recommending singleness in light of what's happening right now. A bit more context here. In this time period, if not right when Paul's writing, soon thereafter we have historical record. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul goes on to talk about this. There's famine, there's earthquake, um, there's war brewing. There's all sorts of, if you just read Roman history, Josephus and others, there's there's ample chronicle. Uh, there's ample histor- historical chronicle chronicling of this time period uh, in the 60s A.D., 25 years after Christ rose from the dead, and uh, it was just rife with all sorts of things that Christ predicted. Okay, are going to happen once I leave. And um, and what is one of the things that Jesus says? He says he's as he's prophesying a few years down the road about the time that Paul's now in, and it's coming soon. That's imminent. The present distress. He says, man, it's. Uh, woe to those who are nursing infants in those days. Woe to those who are pregnant. It'll be harder for them to escape. Okay, so that sort of ties in into saying the world's gonna be full of trouble anyway. If you have a family, it's gonna be even harder. That's part of what Paul's hooking into. So things are hard now. At 70 AD, if you know anything at all about this, this time period, um, Titus, tons of background, things get worse and worse and worse, and finally by 70 AD, Titus takes the Roman army from Rome, from Italy, east, over to Jerusalem, and he absolutely, they barricade, they blockade the city, they starve everybody out such that there's cannibalism, people are eating, yes, their children, horrible things are happening. They finally break in after months and years of resistance from the Jews, and they're so angry, they're so angry that they just tear the entire city to the ground, including the temple, all of it. Done. They burn everything. They kill everyone they can find and take the rest into slavery. There, there are so many crucifixions in 70 AD that they, they crucify Jews on the roads leading out of Jerusalem. This is all historical record. They run out of trees. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews are crucified, okay? So it is horrible, and it's what Christ, it's part of, a large part of what he talks about in the gospel is what's called the Olivet Discourse, okay? And a lot of people think, oh, he's talking all about uh, when Christ returns. No, it's a, it's a form of Christ returning in judgment right there. Christ is going to return. It's gonna be even more intense, but it's a tremor. It's a picture of what's coming. It's a way of saying, man, he's the only safe place, and if you reject him, you're done. And he is the Messiah, and he is the Lord, and he is reigning, and his side is the only safe side to be on, okay? And we also have historical record of the fact that Christians, because they knew that Christ had said this. When this stuff starts happening, flee. You go back to the Gospels and read what Christ said. He said, when this stuff starts happening, when you see the Roman army surrounding the city, flee. It's historical record that the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem and then pulled away for an unknown reason for a time. 
all the Christians, almost all the Christians in Jerusalem fled in mass to a city called Pella across the Jordan. They got out. And then the clamp down and then the destruction. Okay, so this is all historical record. So this could be well part of what Paul's talking about here. It's coming, it's coming soon. I just, in light of this, wanna recommend to you, stay single, it's better. But it's also a picture of sort of the rest of this age, this church age until Christ returns. Because what did, um, every time, not every time, but often when Paul talks about tribulation or trouble or John, like in Revelation 1 verse nine, he talks about I'm a partner with you, church, in the tribulation. He does this in about 90 AD. Um, in Jesus, in this world, you will have trouble or tribulation. That word is slip, flipsis, and it's tribulation as we think about it in Revelation. And again, when we hear about the coming tribulation, we often hear it's seven years, it's in the future sometime. But actually, the New Testament authors, including Jesus, say this age is gonna be characterized by tribulation, especially for the church. He said, Jesus says, look, in the world you will have trouble, but I give you my peace, that where I am, you may also be. If the master is hated, don't you think his servants are gonna be hated too? If, if I, the world is always going to hate me and it will hate you too, if indeed you are mine. And so this is the economy of the cross rolling out in this new age. And that's how, through the suffering of the church, that's how the church, the kingdom of God expands. Uh, it's like, I, I heard one person say once, it's like a fist on water. When you persecute the church, look around the world at where the church is thriving and where people are coming to Christ in mass. It's where the church is being pressed and persecuted. It's like a fist on water. The water, when it's hit, it spreads, it splatters out. And one of the church fathers said, um, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Look at where the church is not persecuted. How's she doing? She's fat and she's lazy and she's ineffective. Do we wanna pray for persecution? That's, no, that's masochism, that's foolishness. But we, all, we need to know that bearing our cross and being persecuted, even in the ways that we are, with our friend groups, with our coworkers, with our neighbors, that's uh, to be expected. And it's actually, if that's happening, we ought to know like, okay, God is working. He's building his kingdom. It's the way, it's the way it happens. And so in these last days, in this new and final age before his return, Christians will have trouble. And marriage, here's, here's in, in sum what Paul's saying, I think. In marriage is work. If I can use the word, it's trouble, like Paul says, okay, in verse 28. It's wonderful, and there's so much blessing to marriage, but anything worthwhile is work and is hard, like running a marathon or, or owning a company or whatever, go on down the list, right? Raising children, good gracious. Uh, it was so appropriate that Avery, you know, my daughter spilled the coffee earlier while I was um, doing something up here, and so it's like, you know, children, I couldn't love her more. Maybe I could, I love her so much, but she's trouble. You know, she spilled my coffee, that's fine. But that's just a picture of the fact that in this world, we will all have trouble, Christians especially, we're promised that, and that's how God's gonna move out in his kingdom. Um, but marriage is trouble too, it's work, it's hard. And Paul says, and I would spare you that. So if you think about it, he's like saying, trouble you already will have, I don't want you to have trouble, trouble, okay? So in sum, you have more to lose if you're married, especially if you have children, right? So one commentator, Lightfoot, he says, a man who's a hero in himself becomes a coward when he thinks of his widowed wife and his orphan children. There are a lot of things that you will not do. You would do, I, don't, I mean, my own life, fine, it's forfeit, but man, when I start to think about if I drag my wife and kids into this, I become a coward. That's part, part of what Paul's talking about. You have more to lose. You also have less to give. Why? Because you're giving, Paul mentions this, you're giving so much as you should do. It's part of the covenant to your wife, your, your husband, your spouse, and children. 
and God will use that, and it's a blessing. But if you're not already called to that, Paul says, I want to say in light of this present distress and in light of the economy of the kingdom of the living God, there's no age past this except Christ returning and making all things new. So just like I'm doing, Paul says, I'm single and I'm sprinting toward the goal. I'm running as hard as I can. I'm getting rid of every encumbrance because I want to win that prize. I'm looking toward it. I'm motivated. Like an athlete, like a farmer, I'm making sacrifices. He's saying we got more than living in light of anything else, our job, our marriage, anything else. And we ought to tend to the things God's given to us, but our chief motivator ought to be the age that we're living in in light of what Christ has done. Wherever we are, married, don't feel guilt. If you're sitting here and you're married, you're like, man, no, don't do that at all. That's not the point of this. What does Paul say? Stay married. Very clear. Stay married. But if you're not married yet, in fact, if you're betrothed, so he's saying and that's a stronger word than engagement, even stronger. You're not married yet, but he's saying, hey, if you're betrothed, it was almost legally binding, but you weren't married yet. He's saying, I would recommend you pull out if you can. Whoa, strong. If you can. If you can't, if you burn with lust or you really want to get married, it's a blessing. I'm not going to tell you not to do it, okay? So that's what he's saying here. As I sort of move toward uh, a bit of a close, let me just say a few things, give a talk give you a few stories, and then give, I'll finish with some application. Um, Paul's an excellent example, like I said. He's, he knows of what he speaks. Paul is single, and he probably didn't get married because of the work that he was doing, because he felt like, I can do it more effectively. I can risk more. I mean, Paul was, if you go to, I wish I knew where it was, maybe it's 2 Corinthians 10. He gives a litany in 2 Corinthians of all the things he suffered for Christ. He was beaten with rods to an inch of his life. He was shipwrecked. He was almost drowned. He was uh, stoned a number of times, left for dead, got back up and you know, walked, kept preaching. I mean, just put in prison a ton, all sorts of stuff. Man, risking it all, laying it all on the line would have been much harder to do. Now, let me say this. There have been many martyrs that have families for the kingdom of God. I'm not saying, and also laying your life down daily. Being living sacrifices can sometimes be harder than having actually your life taken at once, right? And that's, um, that's what Christ calls us to, to carry our cross. M- Metti, one of our members, said to me just last night, he's like, it's, he's like we're already dead. We're, as Christians, we're crucified with Christ. Like, we have no rights. A dead man has no rights. And so it's already, so there's a sense in which, hey, yes, that's our reality. We ought to live into that regardless of whether we're married or single. Um, but Peter was married, another chief apostle. He was married, and how did he end up dying? Um, history has it that he was, uh, history tradition rather, I should say. It's almost certain, not certain, that he was crucified. He was told he was gonna be crucified. Christ certainly prophesies it a bit fuzzily at the end of John, John 21. Here's how you will die, Peter. Doesn't say exactly how. Tradition has it that Peter died on a cross, but not like Jesus, and do you know why? Because he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. Flip me. So tradition has it that he was crucified upside down, a married man with a family. So, and great is their reward. Um, Even better though, Jesus. Jesus. He shows us, as with every hard case in the scriptures, he shows us clarity. He shows us the way, what? Uh, The perfect human totally fulfilled, totally in love with the Father, totally pouring his life out in service to those around him, single. You don't have to be fulfilled. 
Christ shows us in his own life. You don't, have to be, you don't have to be married to be fulfilled. He gives us a new way, a better way, a, f- a fulfilled way. Whether we are married or single, he has made us for himself. And in marriage, our marriage, if we're married, ought to be a picture of that, right? Not an end in itself, but a picture of the fact that he has won us to himself through his body and his blood. And he calls us to come by faith. Um, a story, John 4, the story of the Samaritan woman. I preached it about a year ago or so, maybe longer. And it's a true story about early in the uh, ministry of Christ. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and uh, Jesus didn't, though. The Samaritans were right above. Still, in Israel, they call Samaria just the part north of Jerusalem. It's around the the Sea of Galilee. So Samaria, the Samaritans inhabited that northern area, and the Jews thought they were a mongrel race that had been mixed uh, with the Assyrians through the through the exile that had happened centuries before, and they didn't worship the same God according to the same scriptures, okay? And so they wouldn't have anything to do with them, but Jesus walked right through their territory. And the first person that he revealed himself to was a Samaritan woman who had had five husbands, and the person she was living with then was not her husband. And how does he meet her? He sits down by a well at noon, at the hottest part of the day, and his disciples go off to find food, and he sits down, and he's just waiting. And this woman comes up, this Samaritan woman who's uh, led an immoral life, Okay, and he just starts engaging her and asking her questions, and uh, and he basically reveals himself to her first out of anyone. He says, "I am the Messiah, and uh, if you come to me, I will give you water that will mean that you're never thirsty again. In other words, I will satisfy all those things that you've been running after with your multiple, multiple, multiple husbands. I'm, I'm I made you for myself, and I've come to get you." And I'm honoring you, he didn't say this, but I'm honoring you by revealing myself to you first. Now, back up, if any Jew who reads this story is scandalized, first of all, but, but also even more deeply because they know the backstory here, any Jew who knows his Hebrew Bible, his Old Testament, because the, the, the man, the patriarch, the main character in the story, sitting down by a well, is a, it's called a Jewish, it's called a Hebrew Bible type scene. It's like a scene in a movie that is sort of different characters in different movies, but it's a familiar thing. You know what's coming. You know what's going to happen. That's what this was. And in every time before, okay, with the patriarchs, the man that sit down by the well, a woman comes up. That woman ends up being his wife. She's a virgin. She's choice. She's beautiful. He's waited for her. It's wonderful. What does Jesus do? He sits down by a well waits for this Samaritan woman who even in her own society isn't coming to get water at the same time as the other women. They come in the cool of the day. She's coming alone because she's even among among her own people, she's ashamed. She's full of shame. And Jesus is telling her, I've come for you. I've come for the likes of you. I've come for the lost and those who know that they are sinners and who need a savior. And I want to bring you to myself in a way that, that marriage only faintly pictures okay, I want to know you and for you to know me. And that's what God made us for. And so there is a wedding that is coming, is my point. There is a wedding that is coming that Christ will take his people to. That's sort of at the end of things. It's pictured in Revelation 21 that will fulfill the single, the married, and that's what it's all about. We no longer have to look to marriage and we shouldn't have in the first place, right? But Christ is saying, I am that one. I am waiting for you and I'm making of my church a bride for myself men and women, my body, Um, okay? So 
we were at a wedding last night, and um, this is kind of all when it sort of all dropped down and, and sort of downloaded in my soul. Just how many weddings have you been to? Probably dozens. You know, I have two. But there's something about, you can, you can hey, it's a wedding, we're excited. Do, you can do all that you want to, free date, all this stuff, you know, and it was a great night. But man, every time the processionals happen and the people are seated and the people line up and you're looking at the groom, and my mom taught me a long time ago, just keep your eyes on the groom. Everyone looks to the bride when the door's open. But I love looking at the groom and his face when he sees that bride. Woo, last night was special. It, it is every time, and the doors open, and the music starts, and there she is in her white dress, and she walks down with her father and is presented to this groom who's waiting for her. And this is what we were made for, men and women alike. We were created to be fulfilled by the living God. And all these little snatches of joy and pleasure and meaning in life are gifts, but they're not, they're not gifts that God gives us to say, oh, this is what it's for. They're arrows to point us to him. And so last night just reminded me of that, and in Revelation 21, all of history and all the biblical march ends with Christ coming for his own, vanquishing evil, calling his people to himself, and his church is prepared as a bride for her husband. He receives this. Um, so when Paul is call, making this charge, this call to singlehood, he's not saying, hey, just being single is better, period. He's saying, in light of what's happening, to give yourself with greater opportunity and less hindrance to the Lord and to his kingdom is what I'm talking about. So um, super easy to uh, just to be single and to have more time, for, more me time, more time to travel, more time to focus on me. That's not, that's not what Paul's saying at all. Um, so let me read, uh, just finish with some application. A few things to any, to any single, but also in that light, to, to women especially, this is written by a woman, Sid uh, gave this to me last week and I just think it's worth reading. So it's from the Elizabeth Elliot newsletter, May, June 2000. This lady who's in her 20s, she says this, she says, as single people, we must be willing to offer these younger years of ours to the Lord, not waiting for our life circumstances to change. We may be more free now than we ever will be in active service for God. If he chooses to have us married someday, that's his business. So if you're single now, like, who knows, you might get married, but don't let that be your focus right? Um, ours is to look to him and serve him now. He can use our youth to reach an increasingly more spiritually needy teenage and preteen world. We can give hope to the elderly who see very little evidence of faith around them. We can serve our family and friends by lightening their loads. The example we give of competent work will help others to improve their own work. Our profession will become a pedestal for Christ so that he can be seen even by those who are far away. We can also take this time to prepare ourselves to be brides, if not earthly brides, then heavenly ones. She goes on, when people ask if my biological clock is ticking now that I am 29, I laugh. Four of my best friends have 19 children collectively. I still have four, I have four godchildren and many other children at church and in my neighborhood, many opportunities to mother. Last Saturday, I had 12 children overnight at my house between midnight, 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. feedings of the babies. What a great friend. And quieting and, <laughs> and caring for the, for the older ones, I couldn't have heard any biological clock ticking even if there was one. And that's not even to mention the fact that singles can have ch children in Christ that through their ministry and their lives and their love come to Christ through, through them. My encouragement to singles, she says in finishing, who want to marry, invest in the marriages of others, lighten their load, cook meals for new mothers, take the children on special outings so parents can have time together. Serve and, um, serve and you won't have any time for discontent. Love and your heart will be filled with the love of others. Give it, give it 
so excuse me, give and it will be given to you, pressed down and running over with great joy in Jesus, Michelle L. Chinoweth. Um, and I would say, okay, so let me read a bit to the men and then I'll make a concluding remark, okay? To the men, this is from the pastor that preached on this last week, Drew Knowles in, in Sojourn Heights. And this is a charge that was to everyone, singles, but I think focused on sort of more applicable to women, although yeah, I don't know what men are going to be allowed, single men are going to be allowed to, to, to feed, to come into a home and feed babies at 2 and 5 a.m., but hey, maybe. Um, and we, and we marrieds ought to be, with families, ought to be serving singles as well in the same way, in similar ways, different, right, but just with equal zeal. Um, so Drew says this to unmarried men. He says, avoiding responsibility is not an option for Christian men. If you're content to remain single and celibate, excellent. The Bible calls that a gift. But while you may be called to singleness, you're never called to self-centeredness. And you're never called to passivity. He kind of breaks it down here. This is Drew, all right? Um, don't kill the messenger. No, it's good. Singleness is for serving the Lord. Like, liking your me time, being able to travel, establishing your career, those things are fine. But there are illegitimate reasons for Christian men to remain single. Because singleness is a calling. It may be a temporary calling, but it's a calling to use your freedom to serve the king and his kingdom. And again, as I said, we are a family. And, and so uh, within the, God, Paul doesn't make this, he doesn't enjoin, he doesn't make this call to singleness within a void. He makes it within the family of the living God. And we as marrieds are called, called to serve our spouses and our children, but also singles and singles families. And it ought to be, uh, just a, a place of mutual love and affection and upbuilding. And so um, that, I believe, is all I have to say about that. Let me, uh, let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for mm, having a place for each of us in Christ, for making us into family and for making us into his body and each of us is a different member with a different role to play and together as we play those roles we image you in a beautiful way and I thank you for that. Um, I thank you Jesus for showing us um, not only that you can live a life of singleness and be a complete human but giving your life in toto to us being crushed in our place and rising from the dead victorious so that we could be not only invited into your family and have your father as our father at peace with him, but also so that um, we could be prepared to be your bride. You made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So whether we're single or married, help us to rest in you in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.